1: And in a lot of ways, telling you why the um, American Revolution was so important in in many ways, much greater than uh, what simply took place in the Western
0: Hemisphere. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eric Sterner, discussing Britain, Russia, and the armed neutrality of 1780. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, the Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eric Sterner, discussing the armed neutrality of 1780 between Britain and Russia. He describes in his article, Eric, that is, uh, the American Revolution sending out waves into the world like ripples on a pond. And this article proves exactly that. It's complicated, but it's very useful, uh, and it shows really just how complex, diplomatically speaking, the revolution really was. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Eric Sterner. Eric Sterner, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Tell us about your background. Uh, well, I've got a bachelor's degree in Russian
1: and Soviet studies which is convenient for this topic. Uh, went and got a master's degree in security policy, and then a few years later went and got another one in political science, uh, mainly focusing on international relations. I worked in the national security field for a long time, uh, both in and out of government. I did stints in government uh, for two committees in Congress, and I uh, uh, worked at DOD and then NASA, and I spent a lot of time with government contractors and in some nonprofits.
0: So I'm a national security guy. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, well, from my background in international relations, I was sort of familiar with
1: the, with the armed neutrality from you know my undergraduate education, and I thought that was an interesting perspective on the American Revolution. And as, as time goes by, I've been thinking more and more about how the American Revolution fits in the context uh, of what was going on in the rest of the world, because I think that was a bigger story, and in, in a lot of ways, it gets overlooked. Uh, we're still focused on what happened here. But it was a story the British couldn't overlook. overlook. And then uh, uh, this summer, I was invited to uh, give a talk at the Emerging Revolutionary, war, uh, Revo- Emerging Revolutionary War Symposium on the Impact of the American Revolution. Uh, we want, really wanted to look at sort of how the revolution was affecting the rest of the world, and Russia and the armed neutrality, neutrality seemed like a good fit. So that got me off and running.
0: What were Anglo-Russian relations like before the war?
1: They're generally positive benign even Uh, they really don't have a lot of direct interaction uh that interaction that they do have is based on trade uh russia is a general exporter of raw materials particularly naval stores as are many of the baltic nations when it comes to britain Uh, britain does export some finished goods to russia uh, but more importantly british merchant ships carry most russian exports so in 1766, uh, Russia and England signed a commercial trade treaty. The new empress at this time is Catherine the Great, although she's not quite great yet. Um, and that treaty takes a really important uh, role here in deciding or determining how the revolution is going to affect Russia. The treaty allows neutrals to trade non-contraband items with enemies of either power. Meaning when Britain and France are at war, Russia could continue to trade with France, as long as it wasn't carrying contraband items. Now, contraband items are read to mean war material, things useful for armies, so ammunition, gunpowder, artillery, uniforms, things of that nature. The treaty leaves out naval stores. This is an important point. Russia thinks that um, it explicitly leaves out naval stores. And therefore, Russia is free to trade naval stores with Britain's enemies during times of war. Britain's interpretation of this treaty is a little bit more flexible. It turns out Britain signed several treaties using very vague language um, with a lot of the Baltic states. And Britain argues that the language is vague enough that it can include naval stores. But Britain's position sort of changes depending on who in Britain is doing the interpreting and what the strategic situation is for britain when they do the interpretation it actually had a an Admiralty court rule that a treaty with a different country didn't include naval stores and therefore it didn't include naval stores and it had the same language that uh, it had with russia so that treaty is foundational here in trying to understand where this this process comes out um before the war catherine does want to diversify her trading partners uh again i said she's dependent on uh, british merchant ships and so she wants to encourage other maritime powers to visit russian ports and she wants to have a greater number and greater diversity in the merchants that carry russian exports and this is actually succeeding in 1760 the british council in saint petersburg notes the presence of more french and spanish ships in truth those brit those french and spanish ships are in town buying naval stores <laughs> In 1778, the British ship visits were about 339. All others combined were 285. So Britain still makes up half, more than half of the Russian uh, of the ships visiting Russia's uh, main port. By 1779, British ship visits had fallen to 314, and all others combined were 379. So Britain, Catherine's policy is having considerable success in diversifying our trade. And the Dutch were an increasing share of those ships visiting St. Petersburg. So that's kind of the background that gets you up to um, uh, the relationship that, that Russia and Britain have had at this point.
0: How did Russia view the American Revolution during its early years? Uh, well, to tell the truth,
1: Russia's kind of indifferent. Um, we we you know we're, we've all heard the story that uh, the British approached Catherine and her government to enlist Russian troops for use in the colonies. Um, and she, she pretty quickly said no. Um, But in in a letter to a friend in Germany, uh, she does predict American independence in her lifetime. And the truth is that Russia just doesn't have any interest in the fight. That's because it has bigger fish to fry in in Europe. Um, It's got interests in uh, Eastern and Central Europe and to the South. So I'll give you some examples here real quick. It's got the first partition of Poland in 1772, where Russia, Austria, and Prussia get together and cut up Poland the first time. She just put down a rebellion by uh, of Cossacks led by Emil Pugachev. Um, internal rebellions are pretty common. And they've just finished a six-year, seven-year war here with the Turks, with the Ottoman Empire. And as the American Revolution kicks off, um, the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire are trying to install different puppets in the Crimean Khanate. And then up through the first years of the American Revolution, we get the War of Bavarian Succession. Um, And this is an instance where Prussia and Austria are dueling over influence and power in the Holy Roman Empire. Why this matters is because Russia is allied with Prussia. So Russia threatens to intervene and you get peace. And this all happens around 1779. So up through 1779, uh, the American Revolution has not been at the top of mind in St. Petersburg. They've had bigger fish to fry elsewhere.
0: Talk about the idea of neutral trade. Yeah.
1: There's really two major concepts at work here. They're both kind of vague uh, because we're dealing with sort of customary international law, which isn't very well developed. Um, On the one hand, you've got Britain, which uh, has a policy and a practice of stopping and seizing uh, neutral ships to inspect them on the high seas. And it's looking for war material uh, and naval stores. Okay. So that's one side of the coin, and they base that on the fundamental right of self-defense. They have a right to stop people from trading with their enemies when they're at war. The second concept here is, is a doctrine of free ships, free goods. Uh, it's something that gets picked around and attributed to the Dutch a lot. Um, so the way that, that the stop and seizure would work is that fundamental right of self-defense, because Britain depends on the Navy for self-defense. Um, it has to do these, these stops on the high seas and in trade routes. Um, they have to do this in the high seas because sailing ships made it impossible to do close blockades for any extended period of time. When the Brits intercept a ship, a neutral ship, carrying goods on the high seas, they basically cause it to heave to. Uh, they go aboard, they inspect its cargo, its manifests, Anything suspected of being on that contraband list and bound for a belligerent port would cause the ship to be sent to a British port, where a British admiralty court would adjudicate, basically conduct a trial to see whether or not this stuff was illegal as far as Britain is concerned. Uh, The the trick here was that the burden of proving the cargoes were okay to ship, meaning they were consistent with British um, treaties, fell on the ship owner and the cargo owners. The burden of proof is on the guy who's just had his cargo seized. The free ships, free goods doctrine uh, basically says that neutral ships have the freedom of navigation, and their cargoes should be considered immune to seizure, with the exception for contraband war goods. And this kind of ends up operating on an honor, an honor system in which you know you just trust that the neutrals are not trading, uh, violating their treaty obligations by trading contraband goods with belligerent states. Um, understandably, that's not really <laughs> something Britain wants to bet its, um, bet the farm on. Now, the, the disagreement here between these two um, doctrines uh, is not that bad in the early years of the American Revolution, as far as Europeans are concerned. Everybody agrees that the Americans, that the British, have a right to regulate trade with their colonies. Because remember, nobody's recognized the independence of the United States yet. The problem really comes to the fore when the war spreads to France and Spain, because now Britain is gonna enforce its doctrine much more widely, and that's gonna affect a vast number of states, the trading partners of France and Spain, and that includes Russia. And we saw a little bit of those numbers. Uh, We talked about that a little, a few minutes ago. Um, So things are really brought to a head by 1779, which is conveniently when Russia's continental distractions are coming to an end.
0: Why did Russia lead the charge on this idea? Um,
1: it is it is an interesting question because Russia is not a maritime power. I like think I mentioned before it's kind of an odd to find a land power expressing this much concern about neutral rights in the high seas. Um, but maybe we can talk a little bit about how Russia's trading interests are being affected by British practice. Um, so the war really starts to heat up for the Russians in 78. Uh, an American privateer actually makes the first move and intercepts a British merchant carrying a Russian cargo. A couple months later, a British ship seizes a Russian merchant carrying hemp and flax to France. Now, as far as Russia is concerned, that, she, that seizure is a violation, a direct violation, of the 1766 commercial treaty that it signed with England. Russia protests and Britain ignores the formal Russian protests. They're just, it's not registering with them that this matters. So British seizures of Russian cargoes continues all through the winter of 78 and 79. Now there's this thing called convoys. A lot of countries, particularly the Dutch, are engaged in blockade running, right? It's very profitable. So to say that we're not blockade runners. Uh, a lot of these neutrals started forming convoys because blockade runners tend not to travel together. So we're going to do this, this innovation, we're going to have convoys and the British won't see the convoy because they have a harder, it's a harder thing to convince everybody that they're violating uh, a trade agreement, or trading contraband. And frankly, they'll be intimidated because a lot of these stops are occurring by privateers you know, operating singly. Um, But Britain announces in April that it's going to stop convoys and search them anyway. Second thing that's going on by this time, spring of 79, the Russian cargoes that have been seized by the British have been sitting in those admiralty courts waiting adjudication for a long time. Then when they're finally the courts rule, they're often against the Russians. So by the fall of 79, Catherine's fed up and she tells her ambassador, I want you to lay it on the line with these guys. And she refers to British acts as instances of insolence, insubordination and cupidity. She's extraordinarily angry. (laughs) In December 79, Britain seizes a Swedish convoy. Now, the reason this this figures prominently is it is the talk of courts all across mainland Europe that how could they be so bold as to seize an entire convoy? Now, remember, all these things, the slow escalation of British policy and the alienation of Russia over British naval practices is happening while Russia is distracted. But as I said, by the end of 79, those distractions on the continent have ended. So in March 1780, Catherine's fed up. She proposes a declaration of principles of armed neutrality to the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Prussia, and Portugal. Now, her audience here. Is the British, the French, and the Spanish. She basically adopts the free ships, free goods doctrine. She goes a little bit further than I think is customarily accepted in, in Europe at this time. She says, We're going to have free navigation from port to port and along belligerent coasts. Cargoes in those neutral ships, including that of subjects of belligerent states, is immune to seizure. Except, of course, contraband as defined by Russia's 1766 commercial treaty with Britain, which we have to remember does not include naval goods. Here's a real kicker for her. She decides that blockaded ports are only defined as blockaded if there are enough ships outside the port to make entry dangerous. This totally destroys would destroy the legal foundations for Britain's policy of stopping ships on the high seas. And in truth, uh, in the age of sailing ships, maintaining a close blockade of a port is impossible. You know, you've got to deal with wind and weather, and there are just too many ports and not enough ships. Those principles, as far as she's concerned have to govern admiralty court decisions, meaning the British have to be bound by the principles Catherine just laid out. Um, then she publicly announces a partial mobilization of the fleet, bases the entire concept on a notion of natural law, not on custom, not on common or customary international law. And she proposes a, little, proposes a league of armed neutrality to enforce those principles.
0: How did Britain respond?
1: Um... It's a big problem for them. Um, They're not exactly sure what to do, but strategic implications are massive. Like I said, they've been ignoring Russian protests for most of the war, and they're not quite sure what to make of this. Their first instinct is to interpret this proposal as the result of court maneuvering in St. Petersburg. They're not giving Catherine enough credit. There's, There's very little doubt that she cooked this up on her own. She seemed to surprise her government. Um, so as a result, the government's confused, and when, Britain, when the British ambassador starts talking to various uh, Russian officials, he's getting different stories, which is why he interprets it to int- attributes things to court maneuvering. Um, the reason this is a massive risk for Britain is the Royal Navy is roughly balanced against the combined fleet of France and Spain. There's 117 British ships of line, give or take, and there's about 129 French and Spain French and Spanish ships of the line, uh, and they're divided among multiple theaters, you know, the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, the North Atlantic, English Channel, and so on. Combined, Denmark, Sweden, Russia, and the Netherlands could put to sea about 116 ships of the line. So together, they could match the British. That would radically alter the balance of naval power because it would make it totally impossible if those ships acted in combination for the British to enforce their blockade on ICs. The real surprise, and what surprised me in researching this, was that Britain, despite all this, is still dependent on Russia for naval stores. 90% of the hemp it uses in cordage and 90% of the timber it uses for very large masts comes from Russia. I think it's just another indicator of how totally... Dim they were and unaware they were when it came to understanding what their policy was doing in the Russian court. So that's,
0: they're in a bit of a panic. How did other European nations respond to this?
1: Yeah. Well, France and Spain think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, and they quickly endorse it. After all, uh, they could undermine British naval strategy and isolate it diplomatically. So they both endorse the thing, write like Catherine and, and, and tell her, you know, monarch to monarch. This is great. Uh, the real issue here is the Baltic states and the states in Northern Europe. They're not quite sure what her concept is. How is this thing going to function? Um, and the million-dollar question here for them is how far is Russia going to go to defend its principles and the League members if they join? And you can all rub, you know, uh, boil that down to will Russia use force to back up its diplomacy? Uh, they don't know. Uh, so they ask. They send pretty uh, uh, laid-out, simple, practical letters uh, from uh, the kings of Sweden and Denmark to Catherine. They want to have the answers. Um, and then she has to try and figure out what that means and, and put that into uh, the specifics of the League of Armed Neutrality.
0: Talk if you could about the League of Armed Neutrality.
1: Uh, yeah, it, it really contains the, the seeds of its own failure. It's going to be one of these first multinational... Uh, uh, groups to enforce an international law. Uh, It's not necessarily a military alliance. Uh, And that's partly why it's going to fail. When it comes to practice here, what Russia envisions is basically uh, merchant convoys uh, under the protection of one state's navy passed from state to state to state, a bit like a relay race, so where the convoy is the uh, baton so as a as a fleet for example a merchant convoy moves down the baltic starting in the eastern baltic uh, under russian protection by moving to the central baltic the swedes would take over uh, further to the western baltic and around the straits there the danish navy would take over and as it moved out into the north atlantic the dutch would take over now this this concept for implementing this kind this kind of practice totally renders meaningless the, the value or the strength of their combined fleets because those fleets will never combine under the Russian concept. Uh, in, in truth, <laughs> orders go out to the Russian Navy that you're only going to protect Russian merchants. So the Russians are sort of pulling back real fast after uh, the Swedes and the Danes ask them, what does this mean? Uh, the Russians go ahead and say that this, this international organization or this, this coalition here, decision-making is going to be unanimous as we all know, that's a formula for inaction because you always get to the lowest common denominator. Most importantly is the League is not going to protect the interests of members outside of those trade issues, out of those rights in the high seas. Now, the reason this is part of the poison pill is that those states have the most to lose and the greatest burden, meaning that, you know, Denmark, Sweden, the Dutch all have overseas colonies. They are the most vulnerable to British naval power. Russia does not have naval colonies or overseas colonies that way, so it's not vulnerable to British naval power. More importantly, in a, in a fleet engagement to protect a, a convoy, the Russians are least likely to be around because they're only going to be patrolling the White Sea and the Eastern uh, Baltic, where the British typically don't go. So uh, the Swedes and the Danes pretty quickly realize um, that they've got the most to lose and are going to bear the greatest risk and the greatest burdens. So what Sweden and Denmark do is they go cut separate deals with Britain. And they basically say, we promise uh, to forego trade in naval stores. We're not going to trade naval stores with the French or the Spanish or, or the Americans. And at that point, Britain's main concern is, is addressed. Okay? It, it has less of a need to intercept their ships so they do that in secret and then they join the league so catherine doesn't know that she's basically um uh, created or or or, or built into a new organization to enforce her principles but the way that she built it makes it meaningless prussia austria and portugal in 1781 uh, ironically the americans ask if they can join which means they don't understand it either The Ottoman Empire joins in 1782. The Kingdom of Two Sicilies joins in 1783. So it becomes this sort of pan-European institution, uh, but it's it's powerless. Uh, So in some ways, uh, it's a lot of show, not a lot of substance. Uh, The Dutch are the big question mark. They are now carrying a substantial portion of Russian trade, as we saw in those numbers changing. They're also the major smugglers and blockade runners dealing directly with the Americans. They also have the most to lose. They've got um, colonies in uh, the Asia Pacific. They've got the major colony, the island of St. Eustatius, which is essentially the uh, haven for blockade runners in the Caribbean. Uh, They have the most to gain if the league deters Britain and the most to lose if Britain isn't deterred. The Dutch, of course, are internally divided between pro- and anti-British factions, so it takes them a long time to figure out what they're going to do. So while Denmark, Denmark and Sweden are off cutting their side deals with Britain, the Dutch are still trying to figure out how they're going to respond. the end of 1780, they decide, okay, we're going to have to join the League um, because we're not going to get what we want from the British. Um, and as they make moves to go ahead and do that, uh, Britain promptly declares war. Because if they're at war with Britain, they can't join the League, which tells you how seriously the British took this League as a problem if it um, decided to resort to force to defend the principles that Catherine laid out back at the beginning of 1780.
0: How does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better?
1: Uh, like I think I, like I mentioned at the beginning, we we have this habit of approaching the revolution through American eyes or or increasingly British eyes, and occasionally you know the the French and Spanish wars in the Western Hemisphere work their way in. Uh, but it was a global war, so in in focusing on what was happening in North America, we're taking the, the entirety of the American Revolution out of its its global context. Uh, the American Revolution, and I, I think I use this this analogy in a in a at the beginning of the article is it's like dropping a stone into a still pond and it spreads ripples all throughout the world. And it spreads them directly to Europe. And they even get to the point of affecting events in Eastern Europe and the white sea and the Baltic. Um, so I hope, I hope that it puts that, that, uh, the, that attention brings, brings attention to that greater context, because while we may not think of, think of it, the British policymakers and strategists, had to keep an eye on those changes as they fought the war in America and then as they fought the wars against France and Spain. Um, uh, So that, I think, helps us sort of take a look at the revolution, uh, particularly through if you want to look at it through British eyes in terms of how it's affecting uh, the broader world stage and in a lot of ways telling you why the um, American Revolution was so important in, in many ways, much greater than Uh, what simply took
0: place in the Western Hemisphere. Eric Sterner, thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.